Hello, bonjour. This is Thomas Chatterton Williams, your host for Americans in Paris, a podcast of the American Scholar. We're coming to you from the American Library in Paris, which, along with the Phi Beta Kappa Society, is sponsoring this episode. My guest today is James McCauley. He's a Paris correspondent for the Washington Post and holds a PhD in French history from Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar. Prior to that, he was at Harvard, and he's a native of Dallas, Texas. Jake, you've been here for five years now and seen an enormous amount and written beautifully and incisively about all of it. You're an American in Paris in the best sense. I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. You've become a, an authority on um, a kind of political movement that's coming out of these regions of France, the French far right, mm -hmm. and you've written incisively about the xenophobia. Well, so have you, yes. Um, I've tried to make sense of this stuff, um, but you've written about the xenophobia embodied by a thinker that uh, also fascinates me, uh, mm -hmm. Renaud Camus, who coined the term the Great Replacement. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and tell us, if, is that still... Um, I mean, this, for a moment, there was a refugee crisis in 2015, 2016. And it seemed that this was, you know, this was going to be the subject. Uh, mm -hmm. How do we, how does Europe create a functioning multicultural societies, multi-ethnic societies? And this term became heard everywhere. Is that still the, the, grand replace, the great replacement? The great replacement? Is, is that still the case? Is, uh, is, is this still as much of a concern or have we moved past this? Um, I think it absolutely still is a concern, and ultimately— And what is, is the Great Replacement? I mean, maybe we should back up. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, it, it should almost be you doing the um, explaining about that. I mean, you wrote a, a really, really strong piece on it. I mean, um, but briefly, uh, the Great Replacement, um, it, it, it portends a—how to put it? An almost sort of epochal struggle, a uh, civilizational struggle between the, um, uh, you know, the—, the what what like Renaud Camus and others would say, and I would dispute this, but what they would say is the sort of um, the white Christian European majority of a society like France that is going to be actively replaced in a um, in a kind of doomsday scenario by invading hordes of um, black and uh, Muslim immigrants from North and Sub-Saharan Africa, and I think that. This is, um, I mean, you look, I mean, elements of that kind of very base um, uh, anti-immigrant fear is, is sort of um, palpable everywhere in Europe and, of course, in the U.S., that sort of nativist hostility. But, you know, in France, it has a special significance and a certain kind of um, uh, discourse associated with it because... Um, these were the regions uh, in which France had so many colonial holdings up until the 1960s. Um, so there's that sort of dimension of it as well. And I would say that— What he calls a reverse colonization. Exactly, right. right. And the, 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 I was going to say, like, Camus absolutely uses the rhetoric of colonization. So it's all tied up in that, in short. And then, you know, I would say 100 percent, you see it— um, everywhere in the French right, not just with Marine Le Pen anymore, but with the sort of what, what used to be the, the, the party of de Gaulle, the, the, the UMP, which is now the, the, the so-called Les Républicains. I mean, it's all about Muslims and Islamicization, as they call it. And yeah, I mean, the underlying thing is that we, are, that we the French, are being actively replaced in our own country by, um, by these immigrants. And you know, one of the ironies is that, well, many of the immigrants are actually French, so, um, or have become so. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an open question. But yeah, it's still very present. 
Um, I mean, obviously, national identity is a big topic in all places, but I mean, nowhere quite compares with France in terms of the way that it's um, a sort of perennial source of national anxiety and debate. And, and just it's really amazing. And of course, like the terror attacks have exacerbated the sense that perhaps um, Muslims in France are not like the rest. Um, and that's a sentiment that's a sort of terrifying notion that you see even um, respected, credible um, public intellectuals grapple with. And that is really striking. And I think that the real danger of the Great Replacement, um, look, everybody knows that that is a crackpot idea with no empirical basis and that it's not um, something to take seriously. But what's been so fascinating is that sort of more stylized and more kind of dressed up iterations of that same notion are taken seriously and have been translated into a public forum. And that is really striking. So um, that's the part that I find so interesting, um, the way in which French intellectuals have essentially redesigned and repackaged this this completely made-up conspiracy theory into... Um, into something that apparently has to be um, has to be considered in the the sort of marketplace of ideas. It's really really striking. Well, I mean, part of it I think is because France sees itself as having a universal mission in a way that uh, is kind of unique. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. The, the the republic, what they call the republican ideal. France does mm -hmm. not officially recognize racial distinctions or categorize citizens by ethnic or religious right. statistics. To my mind, this ought to make possible a kind of universal society that we're sorely lacking in, in um, an increasingly balkanized America. Mm -hmm. But a smart French writer, Mark Weitzman, um, mm -hmm. recently published a powerful book about anti-Semitism mm -hmm. in France, for example. The title is Hate in English. Uh, yes. he argue, it, it won um, the, the, the American Library in Paris uh, Prize. This is very good. Um, just recently, he argues that Jews face deep-seated anti-Semitism from the traditional white French population, mm -hmm. as well as from newer groups, specifically the, the descendants of immigrants from the Muslim former colon colonies, who are themselves the victims of racism and Islamophobia here. All this in a society that professes not to recognize these identity markers in the first place. What do you think is so challenging about actually achieving a genuine, genuinely egalitarian, unracialized society? Why can't France live up to its ideal? Hmm. Well, um, I mean, first of all, I mean, who lives up to the ideal of a, of a genuinely egalitarian society along those lines? I mean, certainly not the U.S., certainly not the U.K. I can't think of anywhere that does. So... That's probably worth saying to begin with. In the French case, um, I think it is that there, I mean, the anti-Semitism thing is um, a hugely um, important issue in French society, and it has been for, for decades. I think in that instance, the issue is, as you were alluding to in your question, at least as I understood it, that there is this— It was a um, long question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, I mean, you, you hit on a lot of points that we should, that we should bring up. But, I mean, one of, the, one of the issues with the anti-Semitism phenomenon here, or I, I would say perhaps um, the major one in terms of how it's understood, is that, um, you know, as you mentioned, this is a place that does not officially recognize race, ethnicity, religion— and so what that does is deeply problematize the way we talk about racially motivated hate crimes, right? So um, to give you an example, I, I, I did a, um, like, 
long article about this one particular case, but um, in 2017, there was a murder of a Jewish woman in her apartment um, by, again, um, the descendant of an Im- a Malian immigrant family, a French passport holder, but you know from this background, and it's in this um, this uh, kind of mixed part of Paris. I mean, it was technically in the 11th arrondissement, but it's really in the part of it um, kind of closer to Belleville. So um, you know, a sizable Jewish population, but also very strong North African, Chinese, and um, West African immigrant populations living there. And this apartment building, public housing, you know, mixes all of those groups. And so um, she was murdered by this, like, I think he was maybe, 20, she was 65, he was 26 or 7. And, um, you know, it seemed clear from the testimonies given um, by sort of all parties involved, including neighbors, that it was an anti-Semitic uh, hate crime. Um, and yet, um you know, the state, um, you know, sort of declined to investigate it as such. And that's because, you know, there is this real aversion to seeing things along those lines because it somehow, um, I mean, and ironically, that comes from the legacy of the Second World War when Jewish citizens of France were classified as Jews. And so there is this aversion to classifying people and motivations along those lines for fear of what precedent it may set. Um, but then, you know, in terms of that was a that's a very uh, brief answer to a very complicated question. But I think that on the anti-Semitism thing, like that's a lot of the a, a lot of the issue, which is that, you know, um, the authorities are really hesitant to kind of reify these uh, structures that they seem that they, that they consider to be sort of hostile to the project of um, like universal republicanism. Now, on the other side, um, you asked about why, in general, not just um, on the anti-Semitism side of things, but just sort of in general, is there such an issue with um, failing to meet this sort of vaunted ideal of egalitarianism? And I would say that there's a real hostility to communitarianism in any shape or form. And so... Um, the obvious example, of course, is the Muslim population in France. You know, it's the largest minority group in France. It would also be, I believe, if those numbers hold up, the largest Muslim population in Europe. Um, and again, we don't know for sure. But, I mean, it's if it's not the largest in Europe, it's got to be it's the second large. largest. It's one of the biggest. Um, again, all largely because of the colonial past and so on and so forth. Um, but you... Um, in order to be fully French and to be sort of fully taken seriously as a French citizen, you know, you're supposed to completely divorce yourself from any kind of sign of religious life whatsoever, right? So this is the whole hostility to the veil, which is truly unique um, among all other Western countries. I mean, nowhere would you see. I mean, so it comes from, there are two different laws on the veil in France. There's, there's one about um, the, the, the hijab, um, in French schools. Um, and that, you know, comes from, uh, it began in the late 80s, and then it was a sort of long, um, kind of stereotypically French psychodrama that culminated um, with a, 20, a 2004 law, um, which limits, um, you know, veils from schools and public buildings on the grounds that these are, you know, in a secular republic, these uh, spaces should be free of religious influence, fine. 
in theory, that also applies to other symbols. But then these public spaces all close on Christmas. So you tell me how <laughs> sort of equally that's applied. Um, but then in um, on the other level, there's the burqa ban. Um, and that was enacted in two, tw- 2010, I think maybe 2011 it officially passed. But anyway, 2010, 2011. The, the, the first law was about protecting the sort of secularity of the, the state's institutions. The second is on security grounds. And that's a, you, the, the burqa is banned everywhere, including on the street. So, okay. Then um, the problem is the the public and also the authorities don't always understand the arguments for these laws and where, in fact, they do apply. So um, there is generally this notion that the veil itself is un-French anywhere it's worn. And that, that includes sort of the hijab, which does not cover the face entirely. It's just a headscarf. Yeah, it's just a headscarf. And so you have these, I mean, truly French just... Um, explosions of outrage over things that are seemingly like non-issues in the U.S., for instance, such as runner's hijabs. Okay, so a Muslim woman wants to go on a jog. She also wants to adhere to traditional codes of dress. So, okay, so she wears a runner's hijab. Who cares? Well, as it turns out in France, many, many people, many (laughs) sitting government ministers, including in the Macron administration, gave interviews about how, oh, this is un-French, this is hostile to our Is there an explanation for that that is not um, xenophobia, that is not racism? There is no other. There is no. No, there absolutely is no. There is no That's just racism. That. And I, I say that not in terms of opinion, but in terms of French law. There is no law in this country that precludes a woman from wearing the veil in public. There is no such thing. And for a government minister to say that there is, is nothing but xenophobia. I'm sorry, but there's no other way around that. Um, so you have that with uh, the burkini again. Yeah, the, um, uh, this was a hugely uh, uh, xenophobic uh, famous instances eruption. in the and south. And this, of by France the way, happened of, uh, of women uh, from being... the interior minister of a socialist government. So mm-hmm. it's not just limited to the right wing; it's sort of universal. And yeah, you had these just truly jarring scenes of police officers sort of heckling women and forcing them to sort of either it's to strip, yeah, to strip yeah. in public. It's a weird. It's a weird. It's image. very, yeah. very strange, and that. You know, distinctly um, French. It's very, distinctly very French. French. You would not see that anywhere else. Not I in mean, Spain, truly. not in Italy. No. No. I mean, it's a French thing. No, and um, there is no defense for it legally. Absolutely not. There is not. I mean, that, that's but not it's something my that's kind of that's just accepted. Yeah, and and it, it, it's true. It, it doesn't cut along right and left lines. No, and then, um, but I, I think that where I was going with that that whole veil thing is that it's a great example of um, a group of people i.e. Muslims and those and and also I should say that obviously the Muslim community in France I mean one hesitates to even use the word community because it's so diverse you know there are people as there are with every religion who are very observant people who are entirely secular and everything in between so just keep that in mind but in general you have a group of people that is that is told you know in order to be French and to be taken seriously as one of us you have to live a certain way according to our laws right and our not even our laws, but our mores. Um, So take off the veil, and then you can be part of our group. Well, that means that to be part of, quote unquote, our group, you have to abandon your own identity group. Because if you are an observant Muslim and a woman, you must obey the laws of your religion. And why should you why should you have to sacrifice those in order to be French? This is the problem, right? And that ultimately creates this sort of intractable scenario where the 
Republican ideology, or as you said, like the Republican ideal, and I would say it is quite ideological. So the Republican ideology forces this sort of choice that truly nobody should have to make. It's universally accepted that to be um, a functioning French citizen, you have to strip and transcend your sort of particular um, identity. But that's, I would say, mostly applied just for Muslims. I mean, it's not as though What's interesting, other though, mil- religious groups are forced um, along the same Yeah, um, but I have lines. this conversation with many different f- French Jewish friends who have said that essentially they obliterated their Jewish identity in a way that a lot of even secular Jewish Americans don't and feel themselves to be fully... Fr- they're, they're French first, and the Jewish identity is a mm-hmm. distant kind of... Um, I don't even know what to say. The Jewish identity, it pales in comparison to them thinking of themselves as French. And I wonder... No, it's true. And certainly I wonder in the past, if that has like worked other, for other people have, other groups have had those sort of instances. But I mean, just as a point of comparison, okay. But you're saying that that's, an, okay, that's but, a choice you should, you shouldn't be forced into that. No. And I, and, and, and I, I, I really, I, I don't think so. And also the only thing that really matters in this discussion is that the law doesn't require you to. That's, that's right. the thing. And... However, that's not the that's not the case. Um, yeah, and a, yeah. I agree with you that in previous generations, yes, like other um, minority groups, French Jews, uh, front and center, did go through this process of sort of leaving behind their ethnic yeah, specificity to become yeah. this kind of um, universal French citizen. Right. Um, you can debate about to what extent they were successful when so many Jews are now returning to Israel because anti-Semitism feels so. Um, urgent right now in, yeah. in France, but 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 many many French Jews did feel themselves to be fully assimilated and integrated, and in right. Yeah. But I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, the the colonial experience of I mean, so most of the the like Jewish community in France is the descendants, uh, or, or excuse me, are the descendants of those who came from um, North Africa, um, uh, you know, around the time of decolonization or before. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting is that so many of the um, both like like Muslim population, but many in that community and many in the French Jewish community actually have the same cultural origins, right? They, right? they both come from North Africa, French North Africa. It's fascinating. And in that instance, um, you know, it was a completely different, um, completely different social experience for the two of those groups. And I think that the way the state has treated, I mean, there has been tremendous discrimination against French Jews. I mean, of course, the Vichy government, I mean, absolutely reprehensible, the absolute nadir of modern French history. Um, But in the post-war period, you know, you had these two completely different experiences. And I think that those are are still, um, I mean, not still playing out, of course, but like in the eyes of many in those communities, like that has perpetuated in some ways. And so it's interesting. Like, for instance, you know, many French Jews were, or sorry, many, many Jews in French North Africa were French citizens automatically after the Crenio decree. Right. Yeah. Not the case for not Muslims. Not the case for Muslims. And some of whom were able to become citizens, but not all of them. And so there is this sort of perception in the Muslim community that there is another minority group that had, um, I mean, special treatment is not the right way to put it, but that had this sort of um, slightly more favorable um, experience of being a minority, even though it too had many 
um, roadblocks along the way, even in, especially in, in, especially during World War II. But I mean, we're talking about the post-war period. So that's, it's really interesting. And there is this sort of, this politics of competitive resentment between the two groups, um, especially, and I think that a lot of the anti-Semitism you see in France today, as Mark's book uh, points out, sort of plays on that and misinterprets and politicizes that, that sort of um, different experience. Um, and it comes from that that sort of place of um, competitive resentment, you know. And this is, yeah, it's really interesting to think of um, how much of the contemporary French situation is born in and, and derived from this kind of super complicated, very passionate um, relationship collision between Europe and North Africa yes, and Algeria much. specifically. I mean, the Front National, the National Rally, that comes out of the Pied Noir resentment. Um, right. But on a lighter and more literary note, I want to shift gears um, to another Pied Noir uh, um, and another man named Camus who is dearer to my heart than Renaud. Albert Camus, you went to Algeria um, yes. recently and you retraced some of his footsteps through Tipaza, am I Am I yes, right? Yeah. Yes. Can you speak about that? What was that like? Oh, I mean, it's 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 stunning. I mean, I was so fortunate to get a visa to go. And if you are, um, you know, uh, uh, interested in French history or literature, I mean, there's nothing like seeing Algeria for the first time. It is a dream. Um, and I, for years, had wanted to go but had never been able to get a visa. And finally, um, this year, because of all the turmoil there, and the, I mean, they, they also just had an election as well. Um, but I went in June, and they gave me four days, um, just four days. And so uh, the government— And you had to, you had to fit your literary field trip into that. Of course, I did, the, of course I did the, um, the stuff for the Post, quickly finished that, and then— um, it demanded that I be allowed to go to Tipaza for a day, and it was a dream. I mean, really, it's a beautiful sort of um, uh, Roman ruin along the coast. And um, this is where Camus. This is the setting of nuptials. Where yes, they nuss exactly. And um, you know, it's it's some of his most beautiful prose, I think. Um, and it's really just something to sort of walk around and imagine him there. And I actually, there's a little hike you can do uh, through the ruins. That there's a monument uh, to Camus, and I made a little pilgrimage there. But that was, I mean, it was a really memorable experience. I feel very grateful to have seen it. Thank you so much for coming today. It was a pleasure to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening today. The American Library in Paris has served English-speaking readers in Paris and elsewhere since 1920. To read about its programs and events, please visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org. Please check out program notes for this and all our episodes on the AmericanScholar.org slash podcast. Au revoir and see you next month.